All right, welcome, like I said, to Summer Oasis. Um, over the next three times that we will gather for worship, we're going to break tables. That's never happened. We're just breaking things. Um, we're going to go over three different... Um, ultimately, we're going over Micah 6.8. But it's the reality of, okay... As we approach life, as we approach this world, as we approach, like, what, is, what does God actually want us to do? And even in light of everything that's happened the last couple of months, for me, what God has been convicting me, what he's been just continually showing me over and over again is this passage of Micah 6, 8. And if I'm pursuing Jesus, what does it look like for me in my context, with my neighbors, with my family, uh, with the staff here at the church, with my friends? How do I live out Micah 6, 8? And so tonight, I'm going to take session number one. Uh, in a month, Jane is going to do the second one, and then Brennan is going to close us out in August um, with the final one. And I'm calling this series Required. Uh, Micah 6.8, if you have scripture, if you have a phone, open it up. It says this, he says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus continuously in his ministry reminded the religious leaders of their day that their worship and practice were neglecting the more important aspects of what it means to be a follower passionate for God. They were rejecting peace and love and justice. They were pursuing the things that would allow them to keep power and control. They would teach in ways and even try to interpret scripture in ways that would allow them to be superior above the people that they were leading, uh, either Jew or Gentile. And I think going back even to the Old Testament, something that's important for us and for the people of God is that we pursue doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. So tonight we're just going to do a dive into what does it mean to do justice? Or as the NIV says it, what does it mean to act justly? And I'm going to try to do it justice and I pray that the Spirit would just be moving, that there would be clarity here. I would pray even for myself and for you that the convictions that I felt over the past couple months that I know God's been changing in my heart wouldn't be forced on you. And what would be preached tonight would be truth and what God desires for you to hear. Because there's been things that God's been doing in my life um, that have changed my thinking in a lot of different areas. And I may talk about some, some of that stuff, and I may not. Uh, but I think in order to recognize and understand what does it mean to do justice, to act justly, I want to first look at, okay, if I'm, as a follower of Jesus, I want to do everything Jesus did, how does Jesus approach this subject? What does Jesus actually talk about, and how does he mention living a just life, or acting justly towards people, or doing justice? And what I want to do is I want to take us to, I'm going to take us to Mark 1, and then eventually we're going to get to Matthew 5. I'm going to read a ton of scripture, so I'm sorry if I'm moving quickly. But I want us to approach this and acting justly of how would Jesus do this. Not only how did he, because I'm going to show that, but what does it look like now for us to approach acting justly. In Mark 1, 14-15, I've preached this passage multiple times. I've talked about this as a reality of God coming an appropriate time to do a work and to do a move. And it's Jesus coming to the people of God. And what he's doing is he's declaring a message. And the very first thing that Jesus says to his people, he says, I've come, the kingdom of God is at hand, it's near. It's available. Live into it. It's right now. 
Repent and believe the good news. And when he uses the word kingdom, I feel like it would be a trigger word for the Jewish people. Because all throughout the Old Testament, they're waiting for the king to arrive. There's been prophecies told in every, every prophet, in every book of a king coming that's going to set them free. And there's four aspects, and Janie, you can throw those up. There's actually four aspects of what the kingdom that the Jews were waiting for, of what, when they were waiting for the arrival king. There's four distinctive things, and these are all actually laid out in Isaiah really, really well, as Isaiah prophesies about the suffering servant. There's four things they were expecting. When the, when the prophet, the, the savior, the Messiah would come, he's gonna come as a king, and here's what's gonna happen. First and foremost, that king was gonna be from the line of David. Second, the king was going to conquer evil. Third, the king was going to set things right. And then the king, when he comes, the Messiah, when he comes, once that kingdom is established, it's never going to end. So the first part, the king is going to come from a line of David. It's a reality of the kingship. It's laid out through the people of Israel, the people that God has appointed. The second one, he's saying that he's going to conquer evil. It attributes power, that this king will have power. The third one is this idea of setting things right, talking about righteousness, but also justice. It's the reality that when the kings come, he's gonna make things right. He's gonna allow righteousness to be evident, justice to be done on the earth. And the last one talks of eschatology, things of the end time, that the reality is this kingdom will never, ever, ever end. So, if, and what we're gonna focus is the third one. If the king is coming, which he did, Jesus came, what does it mean that he's going to set things right? And we look at different scriptures in the New Testament. In Matthew 6, he tells us, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. There's an equality there. That as you're seeking his kingdom, you are also seeking his righteousness. As you're seeking the kingdom of God that Jesus has come and presented to us, you're also seeking righteousness, which is to make things right. And in Romans 14, 17, it says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, contextually, Romans 14 is talking about food and not making people stumble. And, but there, he's just trying to get the idea, hey, focus on the priority. What you eat, what you drink doesn't matter. What he's saying, focus on the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is righteousness. And so we read throughout the New Testament righteousness being brought up a ton. And what we don't understand, if we don't know the original language and when it was written, is that in the New Testament, justice and righteousness are the same thing. The exact same thing. When we see righteousness in the New Testament, we should equal it to justice. In our minds, especially for myself, I don't do that. See, for me, as I've grown up, I've always just assumed that justice, to act justly, to do justice, is to make things right because something wrong had happened is to bring about almost a retribution or even a vengeance of sort to making things right in that specific way. To bring about and make sure that, okay, someone has gotten hurt, something that needs to happen in order to, for it to get fixed. That's what I've assumed and thought justice is. And righteousness is, well, I've equated it to being something individual. It's something that I do, that I live my life, I'm living in a right way that God desires for me to live. But as we read the New Testament, we need to equate them both, that the kingdom that Jesus has come is a kingdom of righteousness, it's a kingdom of justice. So what we like to equate, and again, this might just be me, I may just be talking, but I've always equated for some reason justice as vengeance, as making things right in that way, 
when in reality, that's retribution is vengeance. And vengeance can only be brought about by God. Justice is something we can actually actively be a participant in. Justice is equity. It's making sure everyone has what they need. It's being fair and impartial. The emphasis of justice, here's what justice is. You can throw that up there, Jaina. Justice is a restoring of relationships where the powerful use that power to lift up the powerless with impartiality, with fairness, with equity. It's saying that those who have the opportunity where they can use their voice, those who have power in not just a society or a, or a town or a nation or the world, it's even in your individual lives, you have relationships with people. The relational dynamic in general is one that has power dynamics. It just does. And so it's in, that, in a specific relationship, does the person with power use it in a way that keeps the person that is powerless and doesn't have it down or they create an equal playing field. It's the pursuit of a restoring, reconciling relationship that those in power, those with resources, those with a voice, use it to lift up the powerless with impartiality, meaning that it doesn't matter who the person who is powerless is. It doesn't matter. They have worth. They matter, not just to God, but they matter to me. And because of that, one of our main tasks as followers of Jesus is to agree with God about the worth of all people. To serve and regard all people from that point of view is the ultimate determiner of whether we are acting justly towards another person. I'm going to say it again. To treat people with the worth that God treats them is the ultimate act of doing justice. And then the opposite is just as true. To the, to the degree that we define others by our judgments is the degree to which we are acting unjustly towards another person. As I am defining how I think a person is based off what they look like, certain stereotypes that I put on them, I'm acting unjustly towards that person. And we're going to read out all through Matthew 5 how I believe Jesus helps us and pushes us to act justly, seeing the worth inside of every single person. You see, before even I think I became a Christian, the reality is that the way that I would act towards people depended on how I thought they were a certain status that they had. I had a conversation not but four years ago with someone in, a, in the church that they said they wouldn't go to Walmart because, quote, have you seen the people that go to Walmart? And I think, like, I think I've had that thought. Like there's a running joke in general. I think like you could look, like you type in weird Walmart people and you get some images. But what that is doing is that's putting a certain stereotype and defining them in a certain way that puts them in a certain class or status so that I'm treating them in a way that does not attribute the worth that God desires for them to have. And I think we do this in more ways than we can even imagine or I think even potentially even understand. And so I'm going to go through, man, we're open, if you have a Bible, open to Matthew 5. We're going to go through a couple different scriptures on how I believe what I've interpreted, what I've learned, uh, Jesus is approaching people with impartiality and acting justly towards them. And even how he's teaching his followers, his disciples, the apostles, those who are in the crowd as he's teaching the Sermon on the Mount, how he wants them to act towards one another. And I think I see a multiple, multi, multitude of things that Jesus is addressing. He addresses gender inequality. Jesus ad addresses racial uh, injustice. Jesus addresses, addresses systemat systemic oppression. 
When the Romans came in for the Jewish people, they put in certain laws that would keep them in power and actually gave some of the soldiers and the Roman people who would infiltrate Israel and Jerusalem ability to keep power and actually control the Israelites. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we don't think about this, but this is what he does. He teaches us how to act when we come across and come up against these certain things, gender inequality, he, he even socioeconomic class and socioeconomic um, disparity. He addresses it in Matthew 5. So I'm gonna talk about it. I'm gonna try and explain it. I'm gonna try to be really clear. If I'm not, come talk to me. We'll stay six feet away and we can figure it out after this. Amen? All right, four people, let's go. I'm gonna get you excited eventually tonight, hopefully. Maybe you guys will be yelling at me, but we're gonna, we're gonna get her done. <laughs> Matthew 5, verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You see, out of the cultural background uh, in, in Israel, and even in this time 2,000 years ago, women were treated with, I mean, disrespect is not a fair word to even say it. They were not treated with any dignity. They were depersonalized. A lot of the time, men would approach women as projects or um, things, objects of passion and not actually people. And so you can leave that scripture up, Jana. What we're seeing in this scripture is Jesus talking in a way, you can go to the next one. Yeah, is talking in a way that is attributing in a, in a society where women are depersonalized, objectified, and don't have any dignity, he is putting dignity on the woman. Because in this time and in this period, men were the only ones who were able to give a certificate of divorce. And they could do it without any reasoning. If they just got tired of being in a relationship, they could write up a certificate of divorce and give it to the woman. And also at this time, uh, any man could choose whichever woman he wanted to marry, whether she was divorced or not. This isn't as much as it is defining divorce, letting us know that Jesus does hate divorce and God does not like divorce. What it's doing and, and the underlying aspect of, of gender inequality that Jesus is trying to help us understand here is that women have enormous value and purpose and this gives a status to women in a Jewish context they didn't possess. He's treating women as if they too are sons of the law the way that men are. They have an agency before God that is equal to men. His teaching on divorce treated women as people. And this was scandalous at the time. Rabbis hated this. Pharisees and Sadducees of the law hated this. Because the way he te taught on divorce put worth, purpose, and just humanity to women. It's weird, like we don't understand it. We don't understand this, that, that actually women didn't have this kind of status. But in reality, there's still some gender inequality today. Uh, that's my wife, and she's just brilliant and super, super smart. Um, but as a, as a physician assistant, and as a young female worker in the medical field, in the, in the medicine field, she gets treated unfairly by certain patient, patients. There are times where she'll go into an office or, or a, what's it called? A room, a patient room. I don't know why I just blanked on that. She'll go into a room, she'll talk with the patient, like even get to the point of diagnosing the patient and she crushes it because she's brilliant. She's amazing at her job. 
And she'll leave and she'll go tell the attending doc or the physician. She's in dermatology right now. So she, and she's like in the midst of training. But again, she's brilliant. She's crushing it. She'll go. She'll diagnose. She'll kill it. She'll come out. And then she'll come back in with the doctor. And all of a sudden she says, the room changes. The person sits up a little straighter. The way that the person answers, looks the doctor in the eye, is a level of respect that that same patient didn't treat my wife not but five minutes before. And this happens all the time. I know I've done this. I just, there's a reality in how Jesus desires, and I, I brought women up first just because I think it's important for us to talk about he treats everyone the same. And I just want us to be able to examine our heart and recognize, do I treat everyone the same? Do I treat everyone the same? I'm gonna say it again. The way that Jesus talks on divorce puts women away from being depersonalized, dehumanized, and as property and objects of pleasure and makes women people because that's what you guys are. Just by teaching on divorce, it's brilliant and it's incredible. He gave status to women in a Jewish context that they didn't possess. He treated women as if they too, they were sons of the law that the way that men were and you couldn't treat them differently. See, the way that even the whole, not the whole of Matthew, but starting from, oh, I'm gonna say, I think Matthew 5, 21 through, man, through 7, Jesus is teaching and talking in a way that's different than how we interpret scripture. We tend to interpret this section of scripture as two different things. So even going back a little bit, it's, you've heard it say, don't murder. Well, I say, if you have murder in your heart. And so we interpret that as Western, especially upper Midwest people, it's like, well, we just want to figure out what to do exactly. It's okay, this is what the law was, now here's what the new law is. But there's something that we miss that in a way that Jesus is teaching. And you can put up that next slide. The way that Jesus teaches is a different way. What he does is he gives us this traditional righteousness. So you've heard it said that you shall not murder. It's this traditional righteousness. It's this law put in place. This is what I want you to do. And instead of making a new law, what he's saying in reality, what is wrong with the individual person is there's a sinful pattern that you actually can't overcome. And so he says, actually, if you look at someone or hate someone in your heart, it's equal to murder. And then what he goes on to do is he gives us this transforming initiative, which is a recognition that, hey, you're going to screw up. There's going to be people that you disrespect, that you don't like, that you potentially even hate. When that happens, pursue reconciliation. And 14 different times in Matthew 5 through 7, he does this. He gives us this traditional righteousness, this law that was written in Moses. He helps us recognize, here's what the sinful pattern because of that law was initially put into place. And don't worry about the sinful pattern because you're going to screw up. And that's okay. I still love you. It's pursue the transforming initiative that I'm putting at your, at, in front of you. And a lot of time it's dealing re with reconciliation. So with this text of Matthew 5 talking about divorce, he says, originally there's this reality that women were treated as objects. But now, you know, I want you to treat them differently. It's not written anymore that you can just give a certificate of divorce whenever you want. No, you actually make them a victim of adultery, which in turn makes you a victim of adultery so the sinful pattern in this is the reality that men, especially in that time, treated people differently, specifically women differently. 
And because we're Christians and we have a whole Bible, we look at the whole, whole of scripture, Paul kind of helps us know, well, what is the transforming initiative that we need to pursue based off of divorce, based off of a man and wife? In 1 Corinthians 7, 11, he says, um, uh, actually, I'll start with, yeah, I'll go with that. To the married, I give this command. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Saying it's, there's a traditional righteousness that men, yes, you could give your wife a certificate of divorce and here's what would happen if you do. The simple pattern is this recognition that men, you treat women unfairly in this context, start treating them like people. But in reality, despite whatever's happening in your marriage, pursue reconciliation above all things. Next one. Matthew 5, 38 through 39. You have heard that it was said, traditional righteousness, written in Moses, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you now, do not resist an evil person. That's the sinful pattern, and I'll explain that a little bit. And then he goes on to the transforming initiative. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek. NIV says also, and in the original text it doesn't say also, it just says turn to them the other cheek. When we read eye for an eye, I've definitely heard this preached as almost this authorization of violence and retribution. Right? Old Testament's like, okay, you did this, you poke this person's eye out, you get an eye. You steal this cow, you get to steal one of their cows. That's how I've read it. That's how Moses has put it. And actually, when this law was written for Moses and for the people of Israelites, it itself was a transforming initiative, and here's why. Way back in the day, what would happen if, some, if I were to come up to Brennan and stab his wife in the heart? <laughs> Sorry, Allie. There wouldn't just be a retribution that would be equal. What would happen, based in this society and this culture, is that there would be a violence upon a violence. It's, I stabbed Allie in the heart. Brennan would stab my wife and three kids in the heart. And okay, all right, you took it a step further. Now I'm going to come back and steal your, kill your whole family or yourself. And all of a sudden, Brennan's family gets involved. It was this building upon building upon building of violence because they didn't know how, what else to do. It wasn't enough that I just had to get retribution and make it equal. It's I had to do more because you treated me wrong. And so God comes along with Moses in the law, and he says, okay, we're going to just try to stop the trend of building violence on violence, and what I'm going to tell you as a command is eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Stop it there. Don't take more. Because then all of a sudden, the other person would recognize, okay, it was equal. They didn't retribute or get vengeance in a higher way, and it would stop the violence at that stage. And what Jesus is trying to get at here, especially when he says don't resist an evil person, is it's not okay that just you stop at getting equal. It's, I don't want any violence ever. I don't want any violence ever. To resist an evil person or to not resist an evil person is this recognition, and this is the simple pattern. The simple pattern is the reality that when something evil happens against us, we usually want to do it in an evil way. It's, I want to, I want to, or, or to not resist an evil person and I'll get to the, the, uh, just the next part is so good. I'm so excited to get there and I'm rushing. To not resist an evil person is reality that, okay, I get it. You did that to me, Brennan, but I'm just not going to, I'm not going to do anything to you, but I'm going to walk away and I'm going to be pissed at you for the rest of my life. So I am reacting in a way that in and of itself is evil. He, when he says, do not resist an evil person, it's yes, when they do something to you, follow it up with doing something good. 
but don't just step away from it. Address the issue. All right, Brennan, now I need you. So we're going to get to the next point. And this is where the justice thing kind of comes into play. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. In this time, specifically, there was a lot of racial, ethnic injustice. There was a lot of religious inferiority, inferiority placed from Jews onto other people. So what would happen is if Brennan, if I assumed or looked at Brennan and I was a Pharisee, a rabbi, or a high-standing Jewish person, and he was this lowly Samaritan or like poor Jewish person, and he did something that I thought was disrespectful, I'd be able to come up to him and slap him across the face. Literally just slap him. And because in this context and culture, you got to stay up here. In this context and culture, violence was okay. For me to do this and slap Brennan, I want to do it so bad, but I won't. And I know you all want me to. So for me, for me to, there are times when I want to. Allie, if you want me to, I can, oh, she, she wants it. That's not cool. <laughs> right? But this wasn't, like, in our culture, this is battery if I hit him. In their culture, it wasn't battery. There was a system put in place for racism to exist, for people who thought they were religiously, faith, faith-wise, ethnically, racially superior to treat others in a way that was inferior. And so when Jesus says, if someone slaps you in the cheek and I go like this and slap my right hand, I disrespect you, this slap by the backhand is saying, you're inferior to me. I actually don't look at you as a person. I attribute you as more of a slave that's not on equal ground with me. And so to turn the other cheek with still using my right hand is all of a sudden I have to slap him now with my hand face open. And what this does is says, okay, by not doing it in the backhand, I no longer see you as inferior. What this person is saying, what Brendan is saying to me, is he's saying, you can slap me with your backhand all you want, but you're not going to treat me as an inferior because I'm equal to you, so slap me with your front if you want to slap me. This blew my mind when I first heard it. You can sit down. <laughs> Good job, Brendan. right? What he's saying, he's saying, I recognize that there are people who are listening to me right now, that there are people who've lived, especially under Roman law, but in general, even under the oppression of Pharisees and Sadducees who taught in a way that was sometimes evil, that you are being treated as inferior people. I mean, Jews and Samaritans had it. They hated each other. Jews looked down on the Samaritan people. That's a racial issue. And so what he's saying is if someone comes up and slaps you with the backhand and they're telling you you're inferior, open up your other cheek and tell them to hit you with the hand and on the side of the face that treats you as an equal human being. Force them by turning your other cheek. Force them to acknowledge that you're their equal. Now, if a slave or someone who had been treated as an inferior in faith and race or ethnicity for so long did something like this, there would be issues and consequences. More often than not. What Jesus is trying to get at is the reality that there are things put in place that oppress people and treat people unfairly. To act justly is to look at every single person with impartiality, with an incredible worth that God sees them and how God sees them. This is how Jesus wants us to deal with violence. Make sure people are treated equally. Period. We're going to go on Matthew 40. So we're still in the same traditional righteousness and sinful pattern. Traditional righteousness, you've heard it say, here's the act of violence. Uh, there's things written in the law that are treating people unfairly. 
Uh, the sinful pattern is resisting in a way that is evil in and of itself. But don't allow the evil person to get away with how they're treating you. So verse 40, and if anyone wants to sue you, take your shirt and hand over your coat as well. This one's a fun one. No, oh, did I miss it? Go back. Is there, did I miss one? There we go. Boom. Love it. If anyone wants to sue you, take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. In this culture, this is why we need to know culture and context of our stories, of our scripture, how Jesus taught, who he's teaching to. In this culture, this is a socioeconomic disparity issue. The people who could sue 2,000 years ago were only those who had wealth and who had status. So if I had something that was wrong and done against me, if I had a right and an opportunity and a case to sue someone, but I didn't have any money or status, I would not be able to sue them. There was a law written in place, yes, treating people unfairly, but oppressing those with a different status and class than any other people. And so what he's saying here is that they sue you for your shirt. Okay, give them your shirt. But also because the only thing then left you have is your coat or your cloak or your tunic. Because the people who were being sued were those of low social economic status. They didn't have anything. So that means to sue for your shirt means that's all you have, so I'm going to take it. But in reality, what you have left over is a cloak that was the only other thing literally on your body. So if you're in a courtroom and you're getting sued and it gets to the point where you have to hand over your shirt because that's the only thing you have other than your cloak or tunic, Jesus is saying, give him your coat. So you're literally taking off the only other thing that's keeping you from being naked and you're giving it to the person. And all of a sudden what's happening is that yes, you're standing naked in shame, but it's making everyone else around you feel incredibly uncomfortable because the law that has been put in place to oppress those who are poor is wrong and we need to do something about it. So make everyone else feel shame saying, this is all you have, give it to them and show them that what's put in place, how you're being treated because you don't have wealth or status is not right. I've never heard of stories ever happening and of people following this, but this is how Jesus wanted people to act. If there's things put in place that are treating people unfairly, address it, act justly. So that was socioeconomic. The next one I think deals with the reality of systemic oppression. When there's some laws put in place that allow other people to actually use power to control. Matthew 5, 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Like, I don't know how many times you've heard this scripture, but it's like, oh, this is the classic scripture you use for how do you serve people. Oh, they're going to ask you to do this one thing. Well, just go the extra mile. And that's how we say it. That's how we teach it. That's how we teach people. Right? I mean, Right? No? Am I the only one who kind of has interpreted this way? What Jesus is trying to help us here and tell us to understand is that Israel, Jerusalem, was um, under Roman law. And because they were under Roman law and under Roman occupation, they, the Romans could write laws to help keep them in power. And so one of those laws permitted soldiers to force a Jewish person to carry a pack, a, a, a bag, a pack, whatever, for a mile. Only a mile, once it was a mile, they could drop it, stop it, and then they were able to go do whatever they want. So all the time, Roman soldiers would be asking the Jewish people, hey, carry this thing for a mile. You have to. I force you to because that's the law. If you don't, I get to kill you. So carry it for a mile, but if you went over a mile, because Roman law had swift justice, swift vengeance, and swift retribution, if any law was broken, there would be quick acting. 
So Jesus is saying, okay, if they force you to go the mile and carry the thing that you want you to, and you're at the mile, what I want you to do is use their own laws against them to be able to bring about justice. Go the second mile, because as soon as you go one step past a mile, the Roman government has to take care of the Roman soldier, because you went past the mile that was written in law. He's saying, don't, don't use violence, what Jesus is saying. He's not for violence. But when there's things, rules, laws, and systems put in place to oppress and keep people down, show the people who are in power that it's wrong. Because as soon as he went past that one mile, that Roman soldier was in trouble. And it wasn't any violence on himself or any violence he acted. He was showing the Roman government that there was an injustice in their system. Through all of this, what Jesus is trying to do is help us understand that we need to recognize that injustice comes in a variety of, of expressions. There's racial, there's gender, there's socioeconomic, there's personal that we experience. Do we understand that, that there's that many forms? And so in order to act justly and to do justice, we need to take a look around and see, okay, in my community, in my town, in my neighborhood, in my family, in these relational dynamics, who has the power? And is that power being used to continue to keep people oppressed? Or is that power being used to level the playing field and make sure no one is in want? Remember what I said, justice is the restoring of relationship so that those with power would use that power to lift up the powerless with impartiality. And then go to the next slide, Jaina. What this looks like is people with power make sure that those without are not taken advantage of. And this doesn't have to be a big national statewide thing. I think we assume that legislation and voting is gonna change things. I'm not telling you don't go vote. I think it's important. But we think that checking a mark on a piece of paper is gonna change the injustice that is really happening in their world right now. What Jesus desires for us in acting justly and doing justice is in the relationships that you have and that you see, the voice and resources that you have and the power that you have, how are you using it? Are you using it in a way that potentially takes advantage of other people mentally, physically, emotionally, or spiritually? Or are you using it to lift up the powerless? the marginalized, the oppressed, the downtrodden? How are we using what we've been given to help people? Jesus did much to overturn the religious, cultural, economic, and political barriers of his context, and he did it by demonstrating love, respect, and inclusion toward people of all descriptions. In doing so, often shocking and scandalizing those around him, he treated all human beings as persons of sacred worth. He sought to meet them at the point of their need and to act to advance their flourishing in whatever dimension was most needed. He taught those who would be his followers to be neighbors to each and every person. One of our main tasks as followers of Jesus is to agree with God about the worth of all people. And I think if we, that's where it starts, to act justly, to do justice, it starts with us agreeing with God that all people have worth. That every single person has worth. And on the other hand, to the degree that we define others by our judgments is the degree to which we are acting unjustly towards another person by putting on stereotypes, whether that's racially, 
gender, socioeconomic? How are you treating the people that are around you? How are you acting justly in the relationships that you have and even the relationships that you don't, but you see the oppressed, marginalized, downtrodden being oppressed? And here's the question that we wrestle with to figure out if we're acting justly. You can go to it, Jaina. Who is empowered and or who retains power by the way we're thinking and acting? You want to know if you're acting justly. Look at your thoughts and your actions. Who is it empowering or who is retaining power? I'm going to go back to my Walmart example. Even though that person that I've judged because of the way they potentially look, I'm going to say, I love Walmart. I go to Walmart all the time. But there's been moments in my life, not just with Walmart, but everywhere I go, even in church, that I see someone and I have a fear or an anxiety or a stereotype that I put on them and then all of a sudden I think a certain thing about them. That allows me to retain power over that relationship even though they don't know what I'm thinking. What are your thoughts towards other people? Do your actions dictate the empowering of others, lifting them up, encouraging them, helping them, serving them, loving them? Three things we can do and then Jane's gonna come up and we're gonna worship to act justly, to move forward in this. We need to assess, acquire, and associate. Assess your heart. That's what I've been asking this whole time. It has to start. There's a lot of things we can do and I think different ways we can partner with organizations and people. When the whole George Floyd, I wasn't gonna say it, I'm gonna say it. The whole George Floyd thing happened, I don't think until the last year and a half I've recognized, and it was more through conversations with my black friends, I didn't recognize the reality of some system, system, systemic oppression that exists and systemic racism that does exist in certain areas. And I've had conversations with certain people and a thing that I get back, like the biggest issue is the reality of police brutality over and across actually all races, but specifically targeted towards black men. And a, an argument that I get back is statistically in the reality, white men are killed more by police than black men. Statistically, that's true. Statistically, also, America is made up of 70% white people and 12% African Americans. And also, African American and black communities are heavily policed four times more likely than white communities. That, to me, is an idea of systemic oppression. Why does there have to be more police officers in a certain area for a specific group of people than others? As I think what we've done is we've stereotyped and we've put specific stereotypes on people, defining them in a certain way. Instead of acting justly, being a part of a solution, and it's not just a legislation and voting thing, it's a groundswelling of followers of Jesus, acting like Jesus, treating every single person we come in contact with worth. Because that's how God treats them and desires for us to do so. So when the whole thing came up and I was asking questions, for what do I need to do? And okay, posting on social media, but I'm not really doing anything else. Like it seems ingenuine and doing all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. I need to first and, foremost, first and foremost start with assessing my own heart. Where am I at with this? How do I treat people? When we were moving to Minneapolis to plant a church, me and my wife were driving around North Minneapolis because the house that we were potentially going to live in was in North Minneapolis. And as we were driving around North Minneapolis, I saw a lot of people that didn't look like me. And I had immediate thoughts of unsafety and of fear. That is systemic oppression and racism because I was putting a stereotype on a community of people that were different than I was based off what they looked like. 
And as I was driving in this community, the one thing that I said to Abby was like, wow, we're actually going to be living in a place where we're the minority. I said those words. I look back and I'm frustrated about it. So God was just doing like just how I treat people. And it's not just race. It's socioeconomic class. There's a town that I know of where they purposely build low housing, low housing, um, low income housing in places that are flood zones because it's cheaper to build there. That's systemic oppression towards people of low economic class. And we just don't realize that this is happening and it's real. And honestly, I'm frustrated and in trouble because I don't know what to do about it. And I know right now it just starts with me. How do I treat people? How do I see people? It's us together as followers of Jesus, assessing our heart. Where am I at? Do I treat people like the inherent worth that God created them that they have? Or don't I? Assess your heart. Acquire knowledge. Get books upon books, listen to podcasts upon podcasts from different people and different thoughts, different theologies, potentially even different ways, just to get knowledge and acquire it. We don't know everything. And that's okay. I watch CNN and I watch Fox. <laughs> I want both views. I want to see how they do it. I want to acquire, I want to know how people are talking. I just acquire knowledge. Because I think it actually, there comes a time where I want to do something, I assess my heart and I want to make a change, but then I jump in and I actually potentially can do more harm than good. If you want to know any books that I've been reading over the past couple of months on systemic oppression and systemic racism, let me know, I'll come up to me and I'll, and I'll let you know. There's documentaries that, that are available for us to watch to understand the reality of what's happening in America and what's been happening for hundreds of years. And then because nothing's done alone and because we are relational people created to be in relationship, associate with other people. This doesn't get done one person going at it. It's us together as a movement, making sure that we're keeping each other accountable and, and treating people, not just fairly or with impartiality, but with the worth that God has created them for. Act justly, do justice. Starts with our mindset and understanding that every single person is created with worth. It's checking ourselves when we realize I'm putting a stereotype of a, or a definition or a judgment on someone based off how they look just assess, acquire, and associate. This has been tough for me. Realizing, recognizing that I'd absolutely treat people unfairly. So this is just my heart basically bleeding out to you guys of what God's been doing. Next month, Jane is going to talk about love and mercy. Brendan gets walk humbly with God. Our series, and then I'm praying and I'm asking you to pray with me that we'll be able to have a school year like we want to have, an oasis this fall kickoff that we want to have, and if not, that I would be gracious enough to understand and, and see what God's trying to do in the midst of everything. Let me pray. Jana, come on up. We'll, we'll go into worship. Father, we thank you for tonight. Jesus, thank you for your word and your teachings that push us and help us understand what it looks like to just treat other people. And Jesus, your context was different than our context. It was easily, I should say, more easily recognizable that women were treated unfairly and different and weren't treated with worth or even as people in your context, in your time. Help us understand and recognize that that does happen here. It was more obvious in your time, King Jesus, that there was racial disparity, that there was religious and faith-based inferiority being pressed upon other people who were different from each other. 
Help us recognize that it's happening in our time now. Father God, continue to assess, help me assess my heart. Examine my inner being. Create within every single one of us a new heart, a new soul, a new spirit. I thank you, God, that in my moments where I've messed up, where I've, I treat, I've treated people unfairly and unjustly, you've shown mercy and you're gracious. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, that even now you are filling us, empowering us to go. And I, and I believe as we, as we pursue doing justice and acting justly, it opens up opportunity and doors for us to be able to share the gospel and the good news of Jesus because that's ultimately why we're here. If I just love people and don't tell them about you, Jesus, I've missed something. And I think we've missed it. By acting justly and doing justice, by pursuing the reconciliation of all relationships, using our power, our voice, our resources to lift up the powerless, marginalized, and oppressed without partiality. God, I believe you're going to open up doors for us to share the gospel in ways we've never imagined or experienced. We're going to see the kingdom of God advance in ways we never imagined or experienced. And as we worship now, let us worship unashamedly, knowing you are for us and not against us. Knowing, yes, you've forgiven us, but you've also empowered us. You've called us your children, your sons and daughters, that we don't have to walk around with guilt and with shame, but we can walk around knowing our relationship and status with you first and foremost, God, and that you've actually are desiring to partner with us to go and change the world, be a part of your kingdom, advancing in this place, in this town, in this state. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you'll never stop. We're yours forever. Continue to speak just even as we worship. Let us lift up holy hands and voices raised to the King of kings and Lord of lords, King Jesus, who's our Messiah, our Savior. And it's in his name that we pray.